Welcome to Damn Good Brands. Our guest today is Greg Gallant. Greg is the executive producer, CEO, and co-founder of the Shorty Awards, which celebrates social media's hottest influencers, top creative brands, and most admired organizations. The Shorty started in 2009, and Greg played a leading role in conceptualizing the entire award ceremony. It's now one of the most prominent award shows of its kind as it engages an online audience of millions. Greg is also co-founder and CEO of Muckrack, a very widely praised digital platform that helps PR professionals build successful relationships with journalists and bloggers who are on the prowl for fresh story ideas. Speaking of journalists, Greg is one himself. He's a prolific writer and his columns have been featured in Fortune, Forbes, and Business Insider. At one point, Greg was also an associate CNN producer who analyzed social media trends. Above all things, Greg Gallant is an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur focused on helping other entrepreneurs. He worked at a tech venture capital fund called New Light Associates and also served as a mentor at Techstars, a startup accelerator. Greg also created the entrepreneur-focused interview series podcast, Venture Voice, which featured interviews with big names, including the founders of LinkedIn and Twitter. Greg and I talked about the founding of the Shorty Awards, as well as the exciting trends he's seeing in the world's brand, marketing, and media. Really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. So without further ado, here is Greg Gallant, CEO of Muckrack and the Shorty Awards. Greg, pleasure to meet you. Oh, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Always great to be back in the podcasting game. Cool, cool. So there's a really interesting story about the origin of the Shorty Awards, where you guys essentially just birthed this on Twitter. If you're not too sick and tired of telling that story, I think it's a testament to the power of social media. Could you briefly <laughs> tell that story again? Yeah, my pleasure. So I got into the... Uh Social media world early because I started a podcast back in 2005, so way early podcast days where I was interviewing entrepreneurs. At anyone on my podcast from the founder of LinkedIn back when LinkedIn was still just 30 employees to the founder of Yelp, Vanguard Group, Brooklyn Brewery, and dozens of others. One of the guys I had on my podcast, a guy by the name of Ev Williams, was working on a really hot startup at the time called Odeo. If you don't remember Odeo or haven't heard of it, it's because it failed, it didn't work out. But when Odeo didn't work, uh, which itself was a podcasting startup, but Odeo didn't work, so they pivoted to a little side project idea called Twitter. So that led me to get on Twitter really early, back before it had they could afford the vowels. It was originally TWTTR.com. Wow. And I got my first name on there. So I'm just at Gregory on Twitter, which I also later got on Instagram too, both by, uh, oh, by nice. being an early adopter to both platforms. First names are coveted. It's all, all about the uh, first name club. Yeah. <laughs> so I was on social in the really early days and I saw there was no way to figure out like who is actually good at using social media based on topics. So if you want to know like, hey, I'm interested in sports, who should I follow? I'm mm -hmm. interested in art, who should I follow? There, there, were, there was no mechanism for that. So we had this idea that we could crowdsource it by letting people vote with a tweet. And now, of course, it's commonplace. You go to vote online. It says, please share this on Twitter right. and Facebook. No one had ever done that before in late 2008. So my co-founder and I built the first system that allowed anyone to vote with a tweet. 
uh, figured people would want to vote if it was called an award. Mm-hmm. So tweets were short. We called it the Shorty Awards. Right. Uh, and so basically two weekends of work and an $8 investment, which is what it costs to buy a domain name and GoDaddy, led to the birth of the Shorty Awards. And within 24 hours of launching that website, Shorty mm-hmm. Awards, the term Shorty Awards became the top trending term on Twitter. Whoa. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC, all called us up uh, to cover it, which they ultimately did. And then meanwhile, I'm sitting around thinking like, oh shit, like all these people are going to come to the award show. And at the time we didn't have a venue, we didn't have <laughs> sponsors, anything, because we didn't know if it would turn into anything. And you know, Twitter itself and, social, and the rest of social media was so early, it was hard to imagine where it would go. But mm-hmm. those next two months of my life from when it went viral to when we had the show were probably the most intense months of my life because in that time we found a venue, sponsors, flew in dozens of winners from around the world, Wow. Uh, arranged the media, the whole bit. And that first year, it was uh, it was crazy, but it ended up being a big success. We had the Knight Foundation and Pepsi backed it. We had amazing media coverage. Uh, the first show we ever did, it was back in uh, Dumbo, Brooklyn, at this mm-hmm. great spot, uh, Galapagos Art Space. I remember that space. Yeah, It's yeah. still around, I think. Uh, sadly, actually, they closed up. They, they got placed out of Brooklyn. That's right. They moved right. to Detroit, which they say is the new... It's the new Artist Brooklyn area, the new Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think I do remember reading about them. Yeah, closing. but we it's a great venue. But we we were already outgrown up by the time we did that first show. It picked up so much momentum. Yeah, and after that, we we both evolved the Shorty Awards tremendously to mm-hmm. involve all of social media and element for brands and at an academy, all all of which I can talk about. And that also led to the idea for the other business that I started, Muckrack which is a PR software platform that mm-hmm. helps you find the right journalists on social media and basically the right journalists to pitch, monitor the news, build reports. It's kind of a full PR suite. But the idea for that came from seeing how many journalists came and covered the Shorty Awards. Oh, that's interesting. So one business was kind of birthed out of the other. Exactly. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, clearly there was, from the beginning, there was a big appetite for something like the Shorty Awards to just showcase the best in social media. And in the beginning, I would imagine that's partially attributable to the fact that not a lot of people or brands really knew how to navigate social media. Mm. But here we are a little over 10 years later. You guys have recently celebrated your 10th anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. There's still obviously a tremendous interest in this, despite the fact that social media is more of a kind of household name. You've obviously been able to observe a lot of changes and evolutions in social media. What do you think are the largest changes that you've seen in those 10 years? And what has stayed the same in terms of what works online? Oh, man, it's hard hard to uh, distill it down. It's a large question. Sorry. (laughs) No, I I love it. It's, uh, you know, I I was a philosophy major in college, so I've trained all my life for this. But all right, great. One thing I've... you know, human nature stayed the same for sure. You know, so there's always that dynamic to be heard, mm-hmm. to share, uh, to connect with others. And that's what that's what's really driven the internet since the beginning, you know, since bulletin boards, right? Uh, pre internet, um, or pre World Wide Web with the, you know, beginning of the internet to, you know, very early websites that would be popular and mm-hmm. things that would go viral by email before social media. So there are these threads where if you've been on the internet, you know, you, you see them play out in different manifestations mm-hmm. for, 
you know, over and over and over and just get more sophisticated over time. One thing that keeps changing is like which platforms are out there and for what. And, you know, it's hard to imagine, like only when we started the Shorty Awards, that's only, you know, 10, 11 years ago, Facebook wasn't even open to anyone other than your friends. Right. So the first year we did the Shorties, we didn't even think about Facebook as a platform to care about because you'd only see what your friends post. So mm -hmm. the idea of someone being universally good at making content on Facebook couldn't exist. Right. Instagram didn't even exist yet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Tumblr wasn't even popular. And of course, you know, Tumblr's kind of had a rise and fall since then. Right. We had the rise, of fall, rise and fall of Vine right. throughout the shorties where we were the first to honor people on Vine and then mm -hmm. had to do a very sad send-off segment to Vine. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch these platforms rise and fall. And we've seen it ever since... Uh, AOL, you know, Dig, people forget about Dig, right. Reddit, right. Uh, which is now a shadow of its former self. And as um, kind of monopolistic and powerful as the networks, the big social media networks are now, like mm -hmm. they're, they're still kind of fragile and always changing where you can see, I mean, aside from all the controversy and boycott, uh, you know, even putting that aside, a lot of people, young people just stopped using Facebook because mm -hmm. all their parents were on it. Right. And they moved to Instagram, which of course is owned by Facebook. But then many of them are now uh, still, they'll still spend a lot of time on Snap, but, you mm -hmm. know, the teenage demographic. Many of them are going really hard on TikTok now too, which is a totally different company. Yeah, and that's then, where all the kids are going. Yeah, who knows what's going to come after TikTok. So yeah. it's kind of like, you know, I always think of them like nightclubs where mm. no matter how great the nightclub is, it's going to be cool. And that nightclub isn't going to be cool in five or 10 years. <laughs> right. Maybe they'll still make a profit. You know, maybe there'll still be some old folks that go to it to, uh, <laughs> to relive their glory days, but it's not going to be the cool nightclub. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in terms of what brands are doing on social media, what have been some of the some of the most exciting things that you've seen in in brands doing social media properly in in recent years? Because I feel like that has had so many ebbs and flows and iterations, but there's also been things that have kind of remained the same in terms of how brands can effectively use social media. But recently, what have you been seeing that's been exciting you? Yeah, one, one thing that's really exciting to me is just watching the brands do more listening on social and using content created by their fans mm -hmm. and customers and and all that because I think the marketing world used to work in this really top-down way where you have the creative geniuses locked in the room and they right. come up with a great idea and then it goes over to the media department and they figure out how to buy the media to distribute that idea out there mm -hmm. and then people just watch it. Right. And that's it. You know, that, that is the the flow whereas now like it's been fascinating having to watch these brands change how they think about marketing in, in that it's no longer that it's how do you interact with your audience have a little give and take with them mm -hmm. and that has really uh big implications because not only do you have to change how you're marketing but you have to change how you staff how you think about the campaigns right. your timelines getting more iterative, you know, mm -hmm. thinking more like a product company rather than just thinking like, uh, you know, a big creative production. So it's been a lot of fun to watch over the years. Yeah, cool. So how did the um, the Social Good Awards come about? 
It was so, a natural kind of outgrowth of the Shorty Awards, right? That's right. So the Shorty Awards uh, evolved onto the best of social media and, and digital in general, great things that are happening on the internet. And we saw this interesting trend within the Shorties. And uh, I should mention there are actually two parts to the, the main Shorties. One's for influencers where mm-hmm. we have celebrities and YouTube creators and online influencers winning awards. Right. We have another half of it for brands and agencies that submit their best work. And that's a peer jury that, that then awards who's the best at doing this social media and digital marketing. Mm-hmm. And we saw among that that the social good category was the most popular. Mm. And that really struck us because social good used to be kind of a sideline idea. You know, right. this, this was about three, four years ago. But it was the most popular. And the big and then we we checked in with a lot of our academy members and like what we saw early on, I think this trend is super played uh or has had a really big effect. And I don't think it's played out. I think it's still we're just seeing the beginning of it. But basically that the way brands have thought about social issues has completely changed where it used to be that you know you're gonna you're gonna make tide. And the last thing you're doing when you're selling Tide to every American is piss off half the country. <laughs> so, you know, if you're making this product, you're like, we're never going to take a political position on anything because, right. you know, the only thing we have now is, uh, you know, a chance to, lo- to lose some portion of the American populace that we should be selling mm-hmm. our consumer product to. But the evolution has been that people care more about kind of the purpose of the product and what the product stands for Mm -hmm. in terms, uh, you know, of a lot of vectors, you know, not only um, the product itself, but how is it sourced? How is it helping causes that they care about or not? We saw lots of really interesting brands, anyone from, you know, Starbucks, which was a early adopter of social media where they're constantly taking stands on social issues, eliminating straws, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we see it with brands that are built all around this, like, you know, let's say like Tom shoes right. where every time you buy a shoe for yourself, they donate a shoe elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Also seeing much more innovative charities like uh, charity water, where they at first Got people to give up their birthdays for charity yeah, and they're amazing doing company. a fundraiser and evolve that in a bunch of different ways. Or donors choose where teachers can post classroom projects and then mm-hmm. people can kind of crowdfund it like a Kickstarter. So we saw across both for-profit companies and not-for-profit companies this whole new way of thinking about causes, thinking about social good. And no one had really uh, built like kind of a cutting-edge social good award show at that point. Mm-hmm. So we figured to be this kind of natural outgrowth of the shorties to honor social good in its own award show, but connected to the same brand because it's really the the technology like social media that's right. kind of enabled the brands to have that voice and has also created the, the demand, almost the necessity for them to take stands on a lot of these issues. Mm-hmm. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I would imagine there's just such a huge interest in observing best-in-class social good brand examples because it's really difficult to do. I mean, just witnessing the backlash that occurred during the last Pride where there were a number of brands who were legitimately invested in the community and did a lot of great, wonderful things. But then there were some brands who just had a rainbow version of their logo thinking that that would do it. <laughs> and even though it in- indicates support for the community, it was just not quite enough. It just felt like it was bandwag- bandwagon 
cause-related campaigns. So, I mean, I'm curious, from what you've observed, what, what do you think are some of the keys to brands properly doing social good campaigns in the right way without being accused of greenwashing, wokewashing, pinkwashing, any other kind of washing? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I think one is... I mean, it's always the best when the brand's built around the idea, you know, and you yeah. look at the ones that that do that well, there are brands that have been doing this for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, Costco's always had a model to pay people very well so they get higher attention with their workers and, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of built into the mix. Other brands uh, start off with like the whole, you know, whole premise of having, a, you know, Organic materials is kind of quintessential to the brand. Uh, you know, the Tom Shoe example again, right. where like that was from the start, it was kind of their raison d'etre, you know, right. to exist. So it's not like you have to, like, you just like, oh, I've dominated the market with this awful product and now I'm going to figure out how to latch on some social good idea <laughs> to it. Right. So I, I think, you know, one of the most exciting things is just seeing like this new category of brand being built where that it's, it's uh, quintessential to the brand, but then I think that you know we've seen a lot of brands too that that didn't start that way or take on new social causes mm-hmm. that they didn't have at their founding. And I think the ones that do it well just do a lot of listening. Where you know when you see these brands and it happens all the time, where like some brand, as you were saying, you know, come tries to latch onto a social movement and it's just like something about the implementation or it's really kind of stomach turning and yeah. And everyone in that community they're trying to help presents it. I think it mostly comes from not listening a lot, you know, and mm-hmm. not spending that time saying, hey, I want to want to help out this cause. I should learn about this cause. I should meet all right. the top people in this cause. I should listen to them. I should learn what's been done and see where they need help. And I think so often, and this tends to happen in corporate America, you know, when you're a big, successful company, it's easy to become insular. And yeah. then you have your great ideas in your conference room with 10 people from your company and you all agree it's a great idea, mm-hmm. but you're all sitting around your office all day and you're not the ones out there in the field seeing what's going on with this issue. Right. So there can be a huge disconnect between something that's well-meaning and well-intentioned and that people worked hard on within a corporation versus like the community it serves. Right. In a way, it's not like the product development cycle too, where if you want to develop a new product you can't just sit around your office. You have to get out of the office and talk to the customer. Mm -hmm. And that's why so many companies are successful at growing and scaling whatever their first product was. But so many companies are really bad at launching new products yeah, because they don't have that skill to get out there and learn. And you think about it's kind of the same thing with uh, social good initiatives that it's like launching a new product. Are you, Mm -hmm. are you willing to actually get out of the office and learn and experiment and find something new versus just, sit around your office and optimize what works. So it all really comes down to, to listening in that regard, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cool. Listening and getting out of the office. Right. Okay. So doing those field trips, is there anything, any, I feel like you have a very interesting and well thought out company culture from the perspective of getting out there and, and seeing things and witnessing things. Pixar, for instance, whenever they do a, a new movie, they do field trips to gather information. Like when they did Coco, they took everybody to Mexico. When they did Finding Nemo, they took people out to go scuba diving to learn about fish and marine biology and things like that. Do you have any sort of either company-wide 
series of initiatives that and that that enable people to get out and be exposed to new things that are relevant to to their day-to-day jobs yeah we, we do a number of really unique things here uh for one no one's required to even be in our office right so uh we have across two companies over 50 employees mm-hmm. uh, a third of them aren't even in uh in New York, which is where we are now at our mm-hmm. corporate headquarters down in Soho. So a third of them, they just work from home or a coffee shop, wherever they want, from wherever they happen to live. Right. We have people anywhere from Central Jersey to San Diego, Toronto, Argentina, Italy, Warsaw. Wow. All global over the world. workforce. Yeah, global workforce. Cool. And then, you know, we, we were thinking to ourselves, like, even though we have this nice office here in Soho, um, like, why are we making the people in New York come in every day if people can work totally remotely mm-hmm. perfectly? So what we've done is we've set it up so it's optional to come to the office. You can work from home whenever you want, even if you are in New York. And uh, and also it's like true work from home. So a lot of companies are like, oh, we're work from home, but only on Friday, and you can only do it once per month. <laughs> right. And your manager and their manager have to approve it. Right. The way that we do it is to say any day, you can work from home if you want. You don't have to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. You don't have to give advance notice. You could decide that day. You could decide to work half the day at home and half the day at the office, vice versa. You could find a coffee shop near your apartment. Yeah. We don't care. And people take advantage of it. I mean, if you look around, usually the office is only half full. Mm-hmm. Uh, some days there's only a couple of people here. Some days everyone decides to show up. Yeah. So it, it gives this uh, really large amount of freedom to people. And I think also kind of prevents that kind of group think a bit because people are out there more. Yeah. The other thing it does is it makes it easier to do extended uh, business travel because I feel it myself as CEO where I have a lot of friends who are like their CEOs. They travel away from their office. I'm like, what's going on at my company? They have no idea. So what do they do? They call in every day like, hey, what's what's the mood at the office? What are people talking about the water cooler? What's happening? Because there's no way to know otherwise. Yeah, We've had, because we have this remote culture, even though we have an office, we've had to set it up. So every single uh, conference room, as you can see, has a... uh, video link up so you can join any meeting remotely. Outside of scheduled meetings, all the big conversations happen on Slack. They don't happen around the water cooler and prompto because uh-huh. that'd be unfair to people who aren't in the office. Right. Uh, but then that has this effect for me where I know like, hey, if I need to do a three-week business trip meeting customers, I still know what's going on at the office because all I need is my phone. I can see all the conversations in Slack. Mm-hmm. I can join a meeting from the Zoom app on my iPhone. And I can do everything that I could being in the office. I'm almost at no disadvantage. Right. So it's been really empowering, uh, you know, not being tethered. It's great to have a nice office, but it's mm-hmm. great not to be t- tethered to it. Yeah. And it makes it so much easier to spend more time with customers. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, did, I read that um, Fast Company article where you guys were kind of quoted as the quintessential example <laughs> of a company that's able to have a functional work from home policy because the kind of argument continues to rage on amongst different companies. Does it make sense? Is it bad for career development? And blah, 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 blah. But in your case, what have been some of the most unexpected benefits of 
having a, a work from home policy. One huge benefit has been retention. We have uh, extremely few people want to leave the company. And a big part of it is like once you experience that freedom mm. of not having to come to the office, it's life changing. Right. Like just waking up in the morning, you know, there's a big difference between waking up in the morning and being like, I have to be here by 9 a.m. or my boss is going to give me uh, a mean look <laughs> versus like, hey, I can choose I want to come to the office today or not. I right. can work from a coffee shop. I could work from home till 11 and then come in when I need to change of pace. Mm. That's really hard to give up. And then a lot of people have different life circumstances for which it can be even more life-changing. So anything from... We have a lot of, uh, some people have dogs, so they get to spend all day at home with their dog, whereas otherwise they'd need to spend a lot of money on doggy daycare. Of course, we have a lot of parents who work for us and had a bunch of people tell me like this, this job has been the difference between being able to walk or drive their kid to school wow. in the morning or not. Wow. You know, just imagine the compound effect, like how much of, I mean, we pay very competitive salaries too, yeah. but like, are you going to leave for the next company that's going to offer you 5% more? and give that up. Mm. So it you know can be super powerful there. There's also the global talent we have access to. So if you think about it, a lot of the roles we have are extremely specialized. Mm -hmm. On the muckrack side too, we have all this very advanced technology we're building. So there's a lot of very specific expertise we need. Mm -hmm. So you think about it that way, like what's the chances, even being in a big city like New York City, what's the chances that person happens to live near New York City versus lives anywhere else on the globe. Right. Not that great. So <laughs> it's great to have that, uh, that global access. And finally, too, you know, one of the biggest predictors, I read this study um, years ago, but, you know, I've seen other studies that support it, that one of the biggest predictors of happiness is how long your commute is. Hmm. Interesting. And when you divide it down, so think about it this way, you know, the average day, right, it's 24 hours, but you're going to sleep, you know, let's say hopefully you're sleeping for eight hours. Mm -hmm. So now we're down from what, 16 hours. Right. Now let's say you work, even if you work eight hours a day, most people will end up working more, sad to say, but even if you work eight hours a day, now that's 16 minus eight. So now you only have eight hours of free time, mm -hmm. you know, plus you have to eat and, right. you know, certain errands. So let's say that eight, you know, maybe you work an extra hour or whatever. So maybe that eight, chips down to like five hours of free time that you could potentially spend with your family, mm -hmm. on your hobbies, your side hustle, whatever you want to do. You have those five hours. Add in now like the average American commute of an hour each way, that's two hours a day now commuting. Mm -hmm. So now you go from five hours and you're commuting, you know, two hours of the five, that's 20, you know, what, 40% uh, of the time. Yeah. So you just lost 40% of your free time to your commute for just an hour long commute. And a lot of people have longer than an hour commute. Yeah, I know some people have like two hour commutes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the town I grew up in on Long Island, it was an hour um, an hour on the Long Island Railroad when there wasn't a delay, which wasn't often. Mm -hmm. And then you had to get to the railroad, which was 15 minutes, and you had to get from Penn Station to an office, another 15 minutes, so that was an hour and a half, three hours a day, Right. The, you know, more than half the time. So commutes can have this, yeah, devastating effect on killing your free time. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden you get a job where either you're working fully remote or a lot of people in the New York area, they like the variety. So they come in two days a week or something like that. Mm -hmm. But 
Either way, yeah, it has this drastic effect on your free time. Mm. And uh, th- that's going to have a much bigger effect on your life than how much money you make, right. uh, you know, within reason, you know, within realms, right? Like you'd mm-hmm. rather make 100K than 50K probably despite yeah. the commute. But, you know, within 5 or 10%, you know, some optimal way. But you don't even have to sacrifice the salary for that freedom. I mean, we, we pay, we're usually paying more than other companies for the same role or at least market equivalent. So we're not trading on that. But, you know, we realize there's always, you can always go out and solicit a job offer. They'll pay you a couple grand more. Right. If you're not happy and you're a, you're a really confident employee. Uh, so having that element of that remote work is uh, can be a real game changer. I can imagine it also enables your workforce to be more cultured because it gives them more time to explore their own passions outside of the office. If they're not mired down by all the time it takes to commute and not locked down to a desk, they can go explore different interests and passions and be up to date on cultural events and stuff like that, which is critically important for for, for this company because everybody kind of has to be in touch with culture in a big way. Yeah, that's a great point on both sides with Shorty Awards for knowing culture, with Muckrack for knowing uh, news and media. And my co-founder was an art history and computer science major in college. I majored in philosophy, so we're very big on bringing uh, the liberal arts and thinking from other areas into the office. Well, that's cool. And I think like you said, you know, with that, going back to the idea of getting out of the office and, um, you know, needing to hear what's out there and have a culture that embraces that. Yeah, to a large degree when people aren't trapped spending all their time in an office and then commuting to and from the office, Mm -hmm. it enables that time to be out there in culture and know what's going on and meet with more people. Right. There's another element of it too, where what ends up happening in in companies where everyone has to come in every day is that you there's human nature is to measure people by how long they're at their desk. Oh yeah, work martyrdom. <laughs> yeah, and we all know that element where you know it's uh, you finish all your work at six o'clock, but your boss is still there, and you know your boss is staying till seven, mm. and you're up for a promotion in a month. So what are you going to do? You're going to sit at your computer and check Facebook and right. look like you're working for the next hour. <laughs> so uh, you know they think about promoting you. Whereas with the remote work element, it takes all that away. Yeah, the, you know you just can't measure people by how often they're at their desk. Mm-hmm. In some cases, I heard it incentivizes people to work even harder and show more results because they're thinking, well, they can't see whether or not I'm in the office. I better show real tangible results. That's a great point. Yeah, it's a work harder. Not necessarily work longer, but be more effective and exactly. show the results. Yeah. Because that's all you have to go on. Mm-hmm. And I always, like, I always have friends who come to me who have more traditional work environments. Like, how do you know if these people are really working? And my response is always, how do you know if they're really working at your office? Because right. we all know there are lots of people sitting at their desk at some office crush. park right now. Yeah, exactly, paying Candy Cross. Before that, remember Minesweeper? Everybody right, would play Minesweeper, Minesweeper. And they were yeah. just really good at toggling between Minesweeper and a spreadsheet. You can do it with a single two buttons. That's right. Yeah, it was yeah. the first keystroke you learned. <laughs> so there, there's nothing to say that all these people are sitting at their desk are actually working. And yeah. in fact... They're probably, you know, they're almost probably not because they're resenting having to stay longer than they need to. Right. So I, I think it's a great kind of kick, you know, extra kick to get everyone to think like, are you actually going to set up KPIs to know to know if, pe- if your team is being effective at what right. they need to get done 
versus just being lazy and see who looks like they're working hard. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it, it makes all the sense in the world. I feel like a, a lot of really progressive companies are moving towards that model. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So we're kind of in an interesting place in terms of mar- uh, content and branded marketing where advertising and social content is sort of becoming the same thing. And now if you make any piece of content at all, you're competing with Netflix technically. It seems like entertainment content and advertising content is all kind of merging. It's becoming, because people aren't watching commercials as much anymore, but people are still doing viral videos. Brands are still putting out content. But again, that content, you have to make content that people will want to watch over Stranger Things. You know, I mean, it's a very interesting place we're going where it's a, a lot of these kind of mediums are merging and being somebody who works across all these different mediums, do you have any sort of future predictions as to where branded content marketing is going in the in the bigger context of of media? Yeah, I see that brands need to evolve in, in several different ways. And like you say, it's becoming really hard to force people to watch ads because it used to be that you buy that ad spot on TV. And I mean, the old days, there were only a few different TV channels, so you kind of had to watch it. And then, you know, there were challenges to it with cable where maybe you do channel flipping during the commercials right. and then TiVo came out. They were still able to kind of force people, but now on the uh, on the web, it's hard to force people. I mean, there are sites that push pre-rolls, uh, but they're kind of getting a bit fewer and far between. And then you have the rise of Netflix and, and all these other platforms that don't have advertising on them, mm-hmm. which is uh, a, a big challenge for how brands think about it. So the brands have to think now how do they become interesting? How do they engage with people? One thing I found really interesting is just watching the whole rise of influencer marketing or whatever you want to call it, but this idea of finding influencers and creators mm-hmm. to work with brands. And on one hand, people are like, oh, here's this new thing that we're dealing with. But if you go back to it, um, this has been done for decades, uh, starting with athletes and I don't know if you've read the uh, the great uh, the autobiography of Phil Knight, uh, the creator of Nike. No, but he talks about how when they were building the Nike brand, like they partnered with Prefontaine and all these amazing athletes, and of course, you know later Michael Jordan. But in a way, if you look at how the all the different shoe and athletic brands have partnered with athletes, I think that model is now just being extended to influencers. Mm in that brands are finding they can they can find influencers to partner with to get their message out to their audience. Mm-hmm. And it's tricky because I think a lot of them wanted to get into it and think of it like a media buy. 